Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. On Monday night, 33 homeless asylum seekers came to Inch in County Clare. They were to stay in Moigona House Hotel, but their route was blocked by protesters with tractors and bales of hay. All week long, John Cook reported from Inch. Here he is with local woman Agnes O'Malley. Yesterday we were led to believe that this wasn't going to happen because of uh, a fire search and other issues with sewage. And um, that was Clare County Council had confirmed that with us. And then at 20 to 7 uh, yesterday evening, a busload of asylum seekers arrived here. And uh, to our shock and horror, we just couldn't believe it, like, you know. Why such shock and horror? These people need somewhere to live. Yes, I, I know that. But the way, the, I suppose, the townland here, it's a small little townland. Uh, there's, I think, 54 of us in total between kids and parents, whatever. This is just not suitable, really. We're just out in the middle of nowhere. There's uh-huh. no amenities here, uh, footpaths. For them, even, yeah. it's not fair on them. Kilmele is about, I'd say, about maybe two kilometres uh-huh. to the nearest shop. Innes is about eight point something kilometres. Uh-huh. So, so what else is there in McGowan House other than an old hotel that obviously could accommodate people, it would seem? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You blocked... Um, people coming in last night though 34 residents are inside mm-hmm. I've seen some of them they said they came from the City West Hotel in Dublin yesterday and right. I'm not sure if they knew where they were coming are they able to get food are you allowing supplies in? Um, yes we're allowing supplies in yes And what's we're the plan for today? Um, at the moment um, a lot of the residents here are at, at present um, in Innes at Clare County Council there's a meeting being held there with some of the council officials and we're waiting for them to come back out here then and we'll take it from there then, like, you know. Uh-huh. The blockade may continue or will yes. you allow people... Can you see a way when you would welcome these people into your community? Because well, I understand people were willing to accept Ukrainian families. Yes, exactly. People were willing, of course, like, you know, there was never an issue with that, like... But, but you don't want international protection applicants, asylum-seeking men? Um, That's not the case. It's just that what the problem is, is here, is basically they're just... There's nothing here for them. Also at the protest... Rory Colleen. There's no point keeping lads here that don't want to be here. Like it's uh, it's a very unfair system. That's but what would it, what would it take? What would it take to open this road, Rory? How would it take to open this road? I don't know. I just go, I'll just go back to a previous point. You're trying to put a number. Like these are people. This is a number. Joe, uh-huh. if I go no, to the market, I, I can buy twenty cattle. Like it's not. I, I would never. I would never talk about it in those <laughs> no, terms. No, I'm not trying to put a number on it. It seems yeah. clear to me your community has a number in mind of no, how many people you would accept no. here. You said you wouldn't accept sixty nine. Will yeah, you accept 33 or 20, as some people are saying? I can't put a number on it because it all depends on what that number comes with services. Are they happy being here? So is there anything Minister Roderick O'Gorman can say to your local political representatives today that will lift this protest blockade? You don't like calling it that, but it is. He's a smarter that, man. That can end this protest. What, he's what? a smarter man than me. Maybe he has a resolution. He must have come across this before. Mm-hmm. It's his job. He caused this problem. It's up to him to resolve the problem. We didn't cause this problem. On Tuesday's News at One, Peter O'Connell spoke to one of the asylum seekers, Sharif Meshelbeck. My name is Sharif Meshelbeck. Uh, we was in City West five months, yes. And uh, we get accommodation here, where we, we are happy. But when we come here, we, 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 we find the, the, the way, close the way, and, uh, and something like uh, go home, and something like... Uh, off, go home. We we are not need your your us. I don't know, but we we speak with manager. We we must come back. 
and they said no we must stay here no 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 bus no no shop no anything we we we, we come here for do uh, something good uh, for, uh, uh, i don't know job anything voluntary anything like this but nothing is here only problem so are you going to stay here Sharif? What, what would you like to do we want to stay here but not like this not like this we want we 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 want we want uh, the bus uh, shop everything search job uh, do apply for permission of work apply for anything we want to get uh, in, uh, everything like every everyone uh, yeah. i don't know we are not happy we are scared by tuesday five men had left on foot to return to city west in dublin on Morning Ireland, Mary spoke to Emer O'Connor from the Clare Immigrant Support Centre. She had gone to Mygauna House, but protesters had prevented her from entering. When we arrived at the road where Mygauna House is situated, there was a blockade and there was a number of men and women um, manning the blockade and they said they weren't going to allow us through. I explained to them that I was the manager of the Clare Immigrant Support Centre and that we always did outreach to new migrants that arrived in the county to assist them with their um, official documentation and that we needed to gain access, that this was our work. So they again said they weren't going to allow us. I had to call the Gardaí and the Gardaí, after we had to wait 50 minutes, the Gardaí came out and they escorted us up to McGowan House to, to do our work, which really involves assisting migrants with their um, legal status applications. And given the nature of the work O'Connor does, Mary asked her this. You were saying you and your colleagues do outreach to newly arrived yes. uh, people seeking international protection. Did you get any heads up at all from the Department of, of uh, Roderick O'Gorman, the Department of Integration, or from any place that the, the, the men were arriving on Monday evening? No. First of all, information started to come out from the locality that McGowan House was being prepared for refugees to arrive and that, you know, people that would hear that would tell us. But that's just anecdotal rumour and gossip and you don't know how much of it is true until it actually happens. Mm. And it was Claire FM that actually told me people had arrived in McGowan House. And given, Do you know, that was, yeah, yeah, you given, you know, that um, that's what we heard you had to call Gardaí yesterday to facilitate your entry to McGowan House. What is your reaction to the protests that are taking place? Look, I um, the, the local community are, are afraid and they're probably afraid because there's something different moving into their community. But also, like, their fears could be alleviated if there was clear communications about what was going to happen. In my opinion, these men aren't a threat to anybody. You know, um, they were they were very polite to us, the workers from the Clare Immigrant Support Centre, myself and three colleagues went out there. And they were incredibly polite, very appreciative of any help that we could give them and just want to get settled and they're interested in getting jobs and going to education and they were the, prim- the primary queries that they were asking for help with yesterday. On Tuesday's Late Debate, Barry Lenehan spoke to Mary Howard, Finnegal councillor for Clare County Council. And Mary, uh, you were in Inch at Magana House a short time ago. Uh, what's the latest there tonight? Well, the, the community there are feeling very, very vulnerable. It's, it's a rural area, like there isn't even a local shop out where McGowan House itself is, it's up a country lane, essentially. It's, it's a one lane that you wouldn't, uh, you'd have to pull into to allow a car to pass. There are a number of one-off houses around it. Like, it's a very, very, it's an idyllic area to live, but it's a very isolated area. There's no footpaths out to the main road. There are no facilities, um, you know. So people, 
you know, they are feeling very frightened and very vulnerable there tonight and last night. Frightened over what specifically? Uh, these are, are well, 34 men who, who are seeking shelter uh, coming from very dangerous situations, we're told. So what specifically are the people well, in Clare frightened well, of tonight? Well, one woman said to me, um, there was a number of women I spoke to tonight and they were living on their own. And one woman said to me, this really resonated with me. She said, there could be 60 Irishmen inside there tonight, but I still would feel frightened. So it, it's just, it, you know, I think it's the amount of men there. What are they going to do? How are they going to occupy themselves? What, what, so did, you, what did you say to that woman as a political leader in the area when she raised those concerns? I had to agree with her. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't like that on my doorstep. It's, there isn't even streetlights out in this area. It is really out in the middle of the, the rural Ireland. And the word fear was one that arose again and again. On Wednesday's Morning Ireland, Mary spoke to Clare-based Senator Rogine Garvey and she had attended a meeting of local people in Kilmaley near Inch last Friday. This is not the first time we've had men coming to our, to our county seeking protection and we've never had any incidents with them in the 30 years they've been coming, just to point that out. But I do have to acknowledge there was a lot of fear in the room and we can't dismiss that fear either. I, I'm not saying that they are right or wrong in this instance, mm-hmm. if people feel that's what they need to do, but there is a fear of the unknown in some ways. And But I, I don't know how we could do it differently because it's such an emergency situation. Like the minister himself wasn't even aware of what was happening until just before we all found out as well. And I was saying to somebody in the department, why didn't you ring Clare Immigration Support Centre? Yeah. This is Who will ring them? We don't have the resources. We don't have the... So I think the bigger issue here... Who, who don't is have the resources? Roderick O'Gorman's department? Yes, yes. And Robert who told O'Gorman's you that? Who, who told you that? Somebody I got through to in the department. I mean, Roger O'Gorman himself has, has said that they need more resources, you know. And like this has to be a cross-government issue. It's kind of been landed, I, I, I believe it's been landed all on Roger O'Gorman to deal with this situ- situation. And it's, you know, it's a housing issue. It's an yeah. education issue. It's not just a Roger O'Gorman S- issue, but yes, he so, seems so, to be... So are you, are you saying, um, Roshan Garvey, that your, your party colleague, that Roderick O'Gorman, the Minister with Responsibility, is being... Isolated or being dumped on, for want of a a better word, with this issue and, you know, with now numbers reaching close to 100,000? No, it's not that he'd been isolated, but like the the bottom line is there's a war in Ukraine that led to 65,000 people coming here and 20,000 coming seeking international protection. 85,000 people in the middle of a housing crisis is is a huge emergency issue. Who is failing him then? Is it his, well, his I'm not saying it's, I'm just saying if you look at the if you look at the bigger picture, nobody realised that the Ukrainians were going to come for so long. Nobody knew how long the war was going to last. It's always been like every single day an emergency situation, trying to find more people somewhere to have a roof over their heads, and that's nobody's fault. So it's all mm. people keep trying to blame everybody, but we we obviously need to do more because this is a, this is a huge issue, and we're landing okay. people into places so then, in the middle of nowhere without anybody knowing. So Well, on Wednesday, a virtual meeting between local representatives and Integration Minister Roderick O'Gorman. However, by the end of that meeting, the minister remained adamant that the asylum seekers would stay and asked protesters to reconsider their blockade. With Clare on Thursday, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar.
I was just interested to to see what you said on this uh, yesterday. You understand people's concerns, but that does not mean anyone can say that certain types of people cannot live in their area. Now, what certain types of people do you believe locals in County Clare are objecting to? What does that okay. mean? Uh, what do you think is yeah, behind this? Fair question. Happy to answer that. It, it can mean different things. Uh, it can mean people from outside of Europe. Um, and almost all of these people are from outside of Europe uh, going into that particular centre. Uh, and also um, the idea that single men uh, somehow should uh, mm-hmm. not be accommodated. And whether people like it or not, the majority of people who come here from outside of Europe are single men because that's how migration works. Yeah. They're and, the ones who are able to make the journey and often it's their families follow them later. And one of your own party councillors, uh, Mary Howard, who's also Deputy Mayor of Clare, she said these are young, single men, they're mm-hmm. healthy. If it were 30 to 60 Irish men, people would feel the same. She said one woman was trying to get a landline in so she can get a personal alarm. What do you say to that? Yeah, I, I look. I, I know Mary Howard very well. Spoke to Johnny last week. Great, great, great public rep. Um, I just think we all need to be, including me, by the way. We all need to be sensitive and thoughtful about our comments uh, in relation to in relation to to migration. And people need to understand migration. Uh, very often, it is the single men uh, that are able to make the journey. Um, often travelling long distances. You don't folk. think there's anything genuine in that that there might be a perceived threat. I uh, again really want to be sensitive on, on how, how I answer, answer, answer that question, and, and I don't want to. I, I I don't like you know domestic violence, gender-based violence, violence against women is very real. But but I I I think I think ever straying into the space that somehow. Um, brown men are more likely to commit those offences than white men, mm-hmm. or that, foreign what, men are more likely to commit those offences than Irish men. Like that's not. Factual, actually, and that's what and you're we need hearing. To be careful that's what you're to... hearing when you hear people say that the very presence of single men on mass in a place like this is is a threat, represents a threat to women. That's what you hear. I'm afraid that that's what I might okay. be hearing. I, I, I don't want to accuse people of saying something they didn't say mm-hmm. uh, or put words in people's mouth, but I'm, I'm aware of that trope. Um, you know, look, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. As everyone knows, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a gay man, and one of the tropes about gay men is is, is that we're a threat to children. Uh, and, and we're not, and certainly no more than anyone else. And one of the tropes about brown men, quite frankly, is that they're a threat to white women. And um, I don't like like that oh, uh, that kind of talk. Tishuk Leoveradkar with Claire. As the week ended, the asylum seekers remained at Magauna House, but the protests were continuing. On Thursday's drive time, John Cook spoke to this local woman who was very upset. So I'm upset because we are being painted as a bunch of racist rednecks. Like horrible things are being said about us. And it's not us we're looking out for. It's also these people down here. That's what we're looking out for. We we ask for a promise to be made. A promise uh-huh. to be made for services for these people and an outlet. We asked for that. We've got no update on it. All that you hear on the media is us being these terrible people. And, like other protesters, she pointed to the lack of facilities, the poor phone signals, and she also set out other concerns. We need to know a vetting situation. We need to know that. we have People are not vetted when they move to your community. I was not vetted to come here. Anyone who moves in next door to you will not be vetted. That doesn't happen. But it should happen. You believe that it should happen? Okay. And and the level of consultation you're talking about, I know it would be good, but... I've been in many towns where these protests have happened and they don't, those communities are not consulted. Um, but is that okay? This is the point that we're putting across. 
And at the end of the day, there is going to be 69 males in here. Whether they're Irish, whether they're whatever nationality, 69 men is a serious consideration for our local community and it is a fear. A protester at Inch in County Clare speaking to John Cook. And this week the government identified three further centres for homeless asylum seekers in Clondalkin, Dunleary and Santry. And all of this against the backdrop of last weekend's violence and the burning of asylum seeker tents at a makeshift camp on Sandwood Street in Dublin. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Even Dean Playback know that this is a big weekend for sport. The Champions Cup final, Leinster versus La Rochelle. With Claire Gavin Casey of the 42.ie and former rugby international Fiona O'Brien nailing their colours to the mast. Yeah, I think Leinster, I think with a little help from home advantage, um, there is the argument that La Rochelle have, this, have the blueprint after after last year's final and haven't beaten them last year. Um, and, and there's talk from Ron Nogar about like switching the narrative from, you know, how do you beat Leinster to how do you actually stifle La Rochelle? And, 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 and like as Gavin says, you, we've, we talk about La Rochelle now and our interest is there and, and that subplot of O'Gara and we talk lots about La Rochelle, but we don't talk about Leo Cullen and Lancaster and, and their technical abilities as coaches and the personnel at their disposal. So if Leinster can control their own game with their clinical edge, they should win. Gavin, you have to say Leinster. Yeah, I think Leinster by seven. Okay, all right. Down, <laughs> down to that. Okay, we'll take that. And if that wasn't enough for you, Katie Taylor squares up to Chantelle Cameron later this evening. For Morning Ireland, Paula Flynn brought us this. She's very good. See, I watch every single of her fights. Biggest fan. Uh, I think it's a great atmosphere and Katie Taylor's a really good boxer. She's my hero. She has good style and a good technique of boxing and it's like kind of different to what everyone else boxes like. And still! And as for the fight itself... As fans, we're in for a treat. Um, I would like to see Katie boxing be smart and win this fight easy, but knowing her, she'll get stuck in. Um, if it turns out that way, obviously, I, 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 in these kind of fights, you have to show a lot of heart, you have to show a lot of grit, you have to go through the trenches. Um, we'll see on Saturday night, I guess, uh, who has a bigger bigger heart and who has a bigger engine and um, who's a better boxer. It is on. On Sunday Miscellany, telephone from Nicole Flattery. It would be impossible to estimate the amount of time my mother has spent on the phone to her sisters, speaking in her low, secretive voice, scrutinising information and gossip. One of the earliest memories of my life is hearing the phrase, I'm on the phone. It's a phrase now lodged concretely in my mind, a phrase that carries with it its own specific set of instructions. Don't dare come in, I'm doing something you're not privy to. Now there's no real need to announce you're on the phone. We're all on our phones all the time. But back then, my mother sat against the wall, on a dining room chair, the telephone cord wriggling her lap as she giggled delightedly at whatever one of her sisters was saying now. I'd never considered until recently what a release those phone calls must have been for my mother. She worked in an office when I was growing up where she would have been required to have a professional demeanour, be careful what she said around her boss and colleagues, to laugh at their jokes regardless of whether or not she found them funny, to exude refinement, to prove herself capable. When she came home, she had a husband and two young daughters to whom she must have felt a sense of her personal responsibility. To be nice, to be instructive, to show us how to move through the world as women. What a relief those phone calls must have been. 
but a momentary liberation. They provided her an opportunity to be funny, to be mean and petty if she felt like it, to show a version of herself that we never saw. The young woman who must have once stayed up all night with her sisters, Gideon Manick, talking, talking, talking. Now that is an image that resonates. A telephone by Nicole Flattery from Sunday Miscellany. Now to an interview Ryan did on Tuesday. It was with the singer Steel Wall. And his story is one of forks in the road and decisions good and bad. But the conversation started with his childhood growing up in Dublin. I grew up in South County Dublin and... uh you know, with a, to a single mother, and and uh, on summers, my grandparents would have been travelling people, um, and every kind of every summer, I I would be spent with my grandmother, and um, I lived with her for a good period of my childhood. Um, Was she a settled traveller? Yeah, so yeah. they came off the road in the late seventies, yeah. and they bought a plot. Uh, in Fox Rock there <laughs> You're <laughs> laughing because you don't think of Fox Rock and plots for travellers very New, often that's uh, the same sentence Newtown Park Avenue is where my granddad bought a plot Yeah And uh, you know he liked to live among the rich people but um, <laughs> And what did he do with the plot? <clears throat> he just he was a, a you know scrap and, and fixed up old bits and done a lot of markets and stuff and so my grandmother would have continued that on after my granddad passed she would have been lonely enough, you know, so that's mm. where I kind of came in. And so my childhood was spent like traveling around the country. And, you know, every Sunday we'd be on the hill in, in Summerhill Market. Yeah. And um, and then at Toy Kildare, Carlo, anywhere there was markets, we were there. And, Tell yeah. me about her, your, your grandmother. She sounds like an interesting woman. My grandmother was just an amazing, she was a master storyteller. Was she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, like, I grew up hearing just tales that were hundreds of years. Oh, I can't even remember them yeah. now, but a lot of ghost stories and, and you know, so it was that oral tradition of travellers, you know, passing down story and song. She was uh, she was an amazing lady. She couldn't read nor write, but she she, she got by in life. Like, and she you could know. tell a story. I'd say she, she could hold a room, could she? She could hold a room, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she could turn around with a look as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she... Now, school wasn't for him. In fact, he left in the first month of first year. And then, pretty quickly, he got into drugs. How bad? Yeah, it would have been, like, heroin. And what does heroin do for you when you're, when you're taking it? Where does it bring you? Um, I suppose in the early times, it's just uh, calms the mind and, and it's bliss <laughs> for a brief moment. Um, but... Somewhere along the line, I think you cross an invisible line, you know, and there's no coming back from it. You're you're hooked then, you know, and then it, it turns on you. So it starts out as your friend and then it becomes quickly your your worst enemy, you know. You make that list of things you'll never do and, and that's actually a list of things that you will do, <laughs> you know, to, to feed a habit like... And it's a monster to feed, isn't it? It's insatiable. Yeah. yeah, there is no, there is no, there is no feeding it. You know, how did you fund it? Thieving, committing crimes, robbing, uh, all to feed the habit. When he was sixteen, he was sent to St Patrick's Detention Centre. For me, I don't know about any other young lads, but uh, the first night that I arrived there and they closed the door and locked it after you. You know, when you're in the darkness, I, like, I, I, I cried for me ma. <laughs> like, I wanted me ma at that stage. Like, you know, it was, 
It was just a shock to the system, like, you know. He was there for two and a half years, but 18 months after getting released, he was in trouble again and back in prison. But this time, it was Mountjoy. I actually don't remember, uh, you know, getting sentenced or, or, or going in, but, but the one thing that I remember is when we walked up onto the landings was the smell. Because at that time, there was no t- in-cell toilets, which there is now, I think. But at that time, you were slapping out, you know. So it was just, Yeah, it was just a pot, you know. And that's where you, you, you relieved yourself during the night if you needed to go. And so everyone would come out of their cells in the morning and down right beside where you wash your hands and face in the morning. People would be thrown yeah. the buckets into a, into a sink there beside you, you know. And so that smell, um, we can still, you know. Like, ne- you never forget it. Never, ever forget it. Gets into your bones, I think. Yeah, yeah. Something yeah. like that. And his drug habit went with him to prison. And bear in mind, at this stage, he is still only 20. If I was to meet you then, if I was to say, go to the prison and, and to visit you, what version of you would I get? What what state were you in? Well, I, I, I have photographs from back then. And so basically... Gaunt. Yeah, just gaunt. Yeah. Really, really drawn. Um, probably see me, me rib cage and... And so it was just like, a, yeah, it was very, very different version of myself. Like, you know, it was just t- tin as a whippet and just not with it, just not there, yeah. just gone. He was due to be released, but then something terrible happened, something that would have devastating consequences. January 2004. Yeah. You were nearly out. Yeah, it's coming to the end. Yeah. Out of what, three months to go? Yeah. And an event that uh, changed your life and that of somebody else entirely uh, happened. Uh, what can you tell us about that experience, that moment? Yeah. Um, you were 23. Yeah. Well, like I say, it was, I was still caught in the grip of addiction, Ryan, you know, and it was, a, you know, I, I am very conscious that, you know, some some members of this man's family might be listening, so I'll try and talk about it as best I can. Um, it was just a, a dispute between myself and himself over drugs, you know. And when you're when you're inside, you know, knives and stuff, everyone's kind of carrying uh, uh, for for protection and stuff. Um, and so it was just a fight that got really out of hand. Alan Green, yeah. 30 years old. Yeah. You got stabbed, he got stabbed. Yeah. And then? And and he... Well, I, I didn't know it at the time. Um, so so the officers come and it's been mayhem. So, uh, so everyone gets locked into their cells, you know. And a search begins, you know, cell by cell. They search for... Weapons. The, weapons and, and the other... Me, essentially, they're searching for the other culprit of the fight. And... So when they found me um, bleeding in the cell, they 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 took me out and down into a basement area of the prison, and then from there I went to the Mata Hospital to receive treatment. Um, and that's when I found out that that chap had passed away. How did you react, or how did you feel? Um. I, I, I 
was just, I suppose I was just numb, like, you know. Steelwall pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Alan Green and was sentenced to six years in prison. He had wanted to participate in a restorative justice programme and meet Alan Green's family, but they didn't want this. Talk to me about um, what, how you feel about Alan Green's family maybe listening this morning. Um, well, I'm just like, you know, like I've brought a lot of uh, trauma and, and shame and stuff upon them, you know, so... You know, I'm just very mindful of that, you know, um, that of the hurts that I've caused them and probably their community as well, like, you know. Um, so, I don't know, I just... <clears throat> do you want to say anything to them? Um, I, I do, I do, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it live on air. It would have to be, I'd have to look the people in the eye, like, you know. If it was the chance ever arose, um, you know, and I'd... That's when I'd express, you know, me, me remorse and stuff. It's 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 nearly twenty years later, but I I I still carry it. I still have the, you know, the shame of it, the 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 guilt of it, and and it doesn't go away, like you know. While he was serving his sentence, he got deeper and deeper into drugs. He did want to detox, but he couldn't get into the prison programme. But one chance encounter and things changed. One night, I was kind of, not arguing, but I was getting heated with an officer because I needed to get from my wing to another wing Mm. um, for drugs, if I'm being honest. And, And... the officer that I cleaned on in the in St. Patrick's institution uh, years earlier had rose up through the prison ranks and he was standing outside my cell when I came back around. Mr. McHugh's his name. Right. And he said, Stephen, what is going on with you? Like, you look in bits. So I just told him. I told him what was happening. I said, Mr. McHugh, I can't get clean. I have tried so. Look, I need to get out of here or I'm going to die in here. Um, I've been asking for the medical unit like four or five times they won't give it to me he said right leave it with me and the next morning at 8 o'clock the door opened and the officer said well you pack your kit you're going to the medical unit and that was the beginning you know I've been thinking of my story a lot recently like of mm. the forks in the road you know mm. first time someone offered you drugs and you said yeah that's a fork where it could have went a different direction and so that that officer doesn't know it you know Changed but, everything, but that that was that was the, that was a fork where yeah. my this the journey to getting clean. I detoxed. I, I became involved in school and art and all of that kind of stuff. Therapy. Oh yeah, so I done like alternative to violence uh, programs, and as a part of the detox, you uh, counselling and therapy is is part of it. You see, the thing about it, Ryan, is that all the services are available mm. inside, but you have to seek them. You know, and you have to you have to really want it and seek them, and and then they will put things in place. So that's what happened. I I I got clean in in Mountjoy basically. He got out of prison and began to make music. He moved to Clare and met a woman. They now have two children, and his career as a singer is going really well. He's toured with Damien Dempsey and has a second album just ready to go. So why tell this story now? I've always been of the opinion that the music needed to speak for itself first but now I think it's and I have always said as well look when it's time I will share my story and it's just it's time mm. 
because you know maybe Ryan, someone listening this morning is going through their own struggles or, or I don't think there's anyone in the far corners of the country that's not affected by drugs and, and criminality and all that kind of stuff so maybe someone knows someone mm. who's, who's going through the, the, the same struggle and I, I suppose if anyone takes anything from it it's that like you know you might start off in one trajectory in life but, but it doesn't have to end that way you know what I mean? And, and I, I'm also a firm believer that, you know, some of the most hurt people have the most to contribute to society if they find a way to channel their hurt in a positive way, like, you know, and that the the, the traumas that you've been through in life don't have to define who you are in life. You can, you can use it to redefine who you want to be, I think, you know. We'll leave it at that. Steel Wall with Ryan. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Oh, it's cheap, all right, but at what cost? We speak of the Chinese-based online fashion outlet Sheen, your go-to for dirt-cheap clothes. This week, it launched Dublin as its new European, Middle East and Africa headquarters, and the ribbon was cut by Enterprise Trade and Employment Minister Simon Coveney. But detractors pointed to the environmental impact of its fast fashion ethos and allegations of exploitative labour practices. For Liveline, Colm Mungon unzipped the faders. Yes, we did. First up, Becky, who just loves a bit of sheen. If I want to go to an event or if we have a family gathering or something that I know was coming up, we sit down, they pick the outfits that they want. They love shopping with me and putting stuff in the basket. I order it and within a week, it's there, ready to go. And is the delivery free, depending on the size you order, or is it free anyway? Normally, if you go over a certain amount of money, you get free delivery. Um, if you shop regular with them, you get coupons and vouchers off of them. So not only is it already cheap, you, you then put in your vouchers and stuff and you, you get more money off then again. All right. Well, so I could realistically, if it was for me and the three kids, and we were going to an event, I could probably, probably clothe us all for under fifty euros. To be honest. Oh, that is cheap, but there might be a lot going on behind the scenes to achieve that bargain. Did you know any of this? That there was any kind of a controversy about fast fashion or sheen before this? I didn't I didn't really know anything about it until I, I had seen some stuff online today, actually, about it um, myself. To be honest, I always really just focused on the fact that I was able to get the, the, the clothes cheap for, for me and the kids, you know, that kind of way. I hadn't really looked into it too much myself about it. Right, but I mean, on foot of reading any of that... Does does it make you any more able to make different choices or are you happy enough still shopping on Sheen? I know it might sound morally wrong, but to be honest, I have to look after me and my family and it probably wouldn't stop me shopping with them, if I'm honest. I know, I know it doesn't sound morally correct, but at the end of the day, with the cost of living these days, my kids still need clothes. Right. Do you well, know what I mean? Well, it hey, wouldn't really deter me, to be honest. However, for Christina, second-hand is not only doable, it's vital if we want to save the planet. Second-hand clothes are what you go for. Yes, absolutely, like 90% if not more um, of the time, and for my two daughters too. And um, I 
I don't mean to to insult anyone, but I'm actually shaking at the thought that it's like um, if anyone was judging me because they thought I was poor or because that's definitely not the case. Um, and it's sorry to um. Not at all. You're 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 you're, you're juggling there, Christina. But just in terms of just in terms of kitting out kids and yourself, I mean, yeah. do do you mm-hmm. have the choice you're looking for when you're shopping in secondhand clothes shops? Uh, absolutely. Now, um, I don't I I'm, don't really shop for myself as much, but my daughters especially because you know they grow kids grow out of clothes so quickly. There is, oh, I can't I can't even explain how much clothes is out there. Like. And it's free. It's nothing to do with, you know, Shane's so cheap and it's so affordable. It's really not a cost to the world. And these clothes are free. And my daughter gets complimented on her clothes all the time. And, and it's an environmental stuff. concern for you there. You, you said, you know, it's 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 a comes at a cost to the world. You're talking about the the, the cost, is it, of, of dumping clothes on the water consumption of manufacturing fashion and the like. Absolutely. It's that. And um, my daughter and my children um, growing up and getting rid of that old mindset of uh, I need to buy new and also um, that they learn that whole you know sharing so even their toys are second hand they give their toys I let them know the boys and girls give you that dress you do love it and you know and people still compliment her on her clothes like I can't express enough how um, important it is to really get rid of this mindset of so, new. So- and then Luke phoned in and he had a really interesting insight into buying second hand. I think, you know, the the conversations being had around new versus used clothes is admirable in terms of trying to stop the kind of practices of fast fashion. But in regards to the practicalities of a lived life, I I just kind of feel like you're not going to you're going to find it very difficult when you're poor to see the appeal in buying used clothes or getting used clothes because, you know, uh, there is something special about buying something new. Uh, just explain that from from the point of view of, you know, where people stand income-wise as a family. Why is new more important to people who are poor from your point of view? Yeah, so I guess I grew up as, um, you know, we were working poor or looking back on it, probably just poor, <laughs> dirt poor maybe even. And one of the most exciting times for us in the year was uh, when we got our new school clothes. And that happened once a year. And that was important for us because that was when we got our new clothes that would then be worn throughout the year and, you know, torn up and, you know, abused throughout the year as you are with kids. Um, and so there was something nice about getting something new because when you're so poor like that, you know, you don't you don't get new things. You don't get new cars. You don't get new, you know, TVs. You don't get new furniture. You don't get new anything. All of that expensive stuff is handed down. So things that are more affordable, like clothes, and now obviously with fast fashion, it's very affordable. Getting something new like that has a significant mental, uh, positive mental impact for people who are in those positions. So I, I feel like it's admirable, um, morally and ethically, that people would want to buy uh, used or, or trade clothes and things like that. But I think it's very much a privilege of middle class and rich people or people who are in those positions who have money and disposable income to be able to do that because the people who are poor, they don't have that ability to go and buy that TV or that new car, or that lawnmower or whatever. And those new clothes are going to have a significant positive effect for them. From Liveline. With Ray, this DJ, writer and podcaster. You can call her Annie Mac, you can call her Annie or you can call her Annie McManus. <laughs> they went with Annie.
Now, she was in to talk about her new novel, The Mess We're In. And she's writing now, but not so long ago. She DJed across the water in the BBC, no less. This is the first time in, in the, the radio building yes, in RTE. I love it. I mean, as, as a radio geek, I really enjoy visiting other radio studios and yeah. just seeing what they look like and how they work. This would contrast, I'd say, to the studios of BBC Radio 1 because they're all flashing lights and hip and people standing up and all yeah, sorts of things. Yeah, so they have, they have hydraulic desks so you can move the all desk right. up and down according to whether you want to stand or sit and they have, oh, they have different lighting programmes, you know, according to mood or colour. They're pretty fancy, My yeah. My word, right? <laughs> Standing at your hydraulic desk, are you, with your mood lighting? Two tin cans and a piece of string. Just getting on with it here. Now, while Ray and Daddy did talk about her novel, the chat did also get sidetracked. She had recently turned down an MBE for services to broadcasting. Here's why. You don't have to give it an excuse. You just say no. Yeah, just said no. Well, I, I did. I was, I was very like, really, thanks. It was very nice of you to offer, but I can't do that while the language is what it is with regards to empire I just don't really I don't I don't I'm not doesn't sit comfortably with me and if you ever think about changing the system of your honours come back I'll be here did you say that oh yeah I'm no problem. I've no, I'm, I'm well up for like getting an award, yeah. but it's just the system around it and behind it that I don't uh, mm. that I don't necessarily feel comfortable with. Did you celebrate the coronation? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't on. actually. <laughs> <I just thought. laughs> Talking about quick No, uh, where was I? The coronation. I was in Washington D.C. playing a wedding. Right. Weirdly, someone. Yeah. flew me over there to play a wedding I think you decided you'd be out of the country yeah. on the day did you <laughs> I saw yeah. the date was like yes yeah, I'll take that I'll yes. take that thank $100, you $100 yeah whatever yeah. whatever <laughs> yeah I'll play Sweet Caroline if, yeah, if I have to now she is still dancing and DJing in a set called Before Midnight it starts at 7 and you're home by yes you've guessed it midnight I had issues with club culture and the fact the clubs opened at a certain time and closed at a certain time and me as normally would be the headline DJ would be playing one or two in the morning and that was not amenable to my life and having young two kids. Two children, yeah. I've, I've never felt so free as a DJ and I, I can kind of be really indulgent and play all sorts of stuff I've never really been able to play in the past because I've always had to play kind of a headline set so this is nice. The, uh, the crowd are older but it's basically for anyone who needs sleep. People who've got a Saturday <laughs> job, people who need to study. A lot, you get a lot of women there um, a lot of parents with young kids you get different generations I had a grandmother a mother and a daughter all right. coming to my Manchester show They're three brilliant. generations yeah, where, where would you get it amazing honestly I, it's, so, it's so fe- do you have to do felt like this rebirth do you have to do Sweet Caroline then at the end no. hands touch you do you it's do not, it's you? not far off that though what? I do like the last half hour is full wedding like, we, we go, go on, full where we play like the Communards yes. we play Sylvester yeah, you um, make me feel we play Entrance Set You Free you know right, that, yeah, like yeah, all yeah. that all yeah, that yeah. Abba, bit of Abba right. it's, it's not there's, it's not about being cool right. but it's just about what feels right in the night Brilliant. and uh, it's very fun the much maligned Sweet Caroline. But all of this love of music started back in her clubbing days. A song uh, that you wish you were hearing for the first time again. Yeah. Okay, so the song I chose is by Daft Punk and um, it's quite obscure and I'm sorry about that. It's it's not that obscure. It's called Burning. And the reason why is because when I heard this song for the first time, I was on the dance floor of Shine Nightclub in Belfast, which is which is where I really discovered clubbing and club culture um, you were in university there. In university in Queens, yeah. yeah. 
and I didn't know what the song was called. I just called it the zip song because there's a sound in the song that makes that sounds like a zip going up and down all the way through. Okay. And the DJ used to play it every week. And then when I found there it is, yeah. I hear the zip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I used to just love it so much. And it just brings me back to that feeling of, you know, being on a dance floor, making all these new friends, discovering this new music. And it just felt so exciting. I had bleach blonde, really crop hair, big nose ring. You thought, were, I thought you I was a bee's knees. Big wide <laughs> jeans, really, really wide jeans. I'm cringing now thinking about it, but it was fun times. The mighty Annie Mac with Ray. That is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Too early for a bit of Raven? Nah.